to the Bedpost Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Erin Pym, and what I like to do here on the pod is bring fun and sexy guests into the studio to have in-depth conversations surrounding sex and sexuality. Today, I'm super excited. This is actually a second podcast appearance from this lovely guest. We actually did our um, episode way back when we were in that lovely studio, <laughs> and it's on the YouTube page. If you want to go back into the archives for about a year, I was looking real profesh. You should go check it out. And you can see our today's guest on there. Without further ado, please welcome to the mic relationship coach, Alicia Fisher. Hello, how are you? Hello, I'm fabulous. Man, yeah, just go put on the YouTube video and just mute it. And then, then you have the, the full vibes of, uh, That's of a great what this idea. is like. You just need to like grow out our hair a little bit and then just fade mine a lot. Yeah, then we're good. <laughs> That's a great idea. Before you go ahead in the podcast, go do that. I love that. <laughs> I love that for us. Um, we look cute, I think. I have a feeling. We look cute back then. I can feel it. Our cuteness and, and good vibes and energy are just flowing into the atmosphere today. Our studios are rocking and uh, no one's coming to knock in, so we're, we're good to go. <laughs> Amazing. So tell me, um, what have you been up to since last time? Have oh my you, goodness. like, as far as your sexy, sexy things that you've been doing? Yeah. So, oh my goodness. When we first talked, it, I was uh, starting my master's and in just in the thick of, like, starting to understand that, like, you can actually study sex relationships, pornography in the academic world. And it's very different than the real life world, that's for sure. But uh, since then, I uh, work for my day job, as most millennials do, at a local sexual assault center doing the prevention education work. There I speak to individuals and people ranging from kindergarten all the way through high school, college, university, organizations, workplaces around uh, surrounding a variety of topics of sexual violence, bystander intervention, trauma-informed spaces, working with survivors of sexual violence, etc. Mm-hmm. And now I've, I've since graduated my master's and I'm now doing my PhD in human sexuality all the way down in California. So I've actually spoken in uh, a couple of different countries around my master's research in pornography and um, or as I like to say to the more vanilla crowd or the the intro folks online erotic imagery consumption so there's always <laughs> I like that that's fancy there's, there's always that one person who knows what I'm talking about and everyone's like wow that's interesting and I'm like you don't even know so uh, it's great you know yes. what you don't know millions of billions of a dollar of an industry uh, oh yeah enjoy oh, a couple pennies online erotic imagery yeah. <laughs> I love that <laughs> I love trying to just like you know academic academicize sure that you know what I mean (laughs) we're making it a verb it it works yeah what was the um indicator for you that you wanted to go into this field 
So uh, like most folks, I've always been very fascinated with pornography, just in a more sadistic and uh, creepier kind of way with what I do. (laughs) I was just really intrigued by the bodies that were being represented in it, what they were doing, and why the heck I didn't look like them. You know, the first video I came across would have been in like grade six, grade seven, Mm. and you know, that satellite porn, the 700s, um, (laughs) I figured out my my biological father had an adult code, and I figured out the code, and uh, (laughs) this gorgeous blonde (laughs) woman showed up on my screen, big blonde hair, big boobs, cute little white shirt, and little nipples sticking through, and I was like, oh my gosh, like, I can't wait to hit puberty, and this is what sex is going to look like, that's what it's going to sound like. And then puberty hit, and I was like, how did I mess up? And so... Where are my double Ds? Yes, where did they go? And why can't I have my nipples popping through my shirt without being sexually harassed? Like, this is, this was so fascinating to me. And I just threw myself into the research surrounding this. And it is just incredible how much in the shadows pornography is. Like, we just don't want to exist it, uh, or we don't want to pretend it exists but like we know it does Mm -hmm. and whenever there's discussions about it it's like ban it abolish it it's terrible it's it's ruining the world but when you find out that millions of people are turning into one certain hubs website every single day yeah it really changes your perspective and goes and we start to think like we need to talk about this in a way that is educating us and is going to give us informed decisions as to how we are choosing to consume this material Mm-hmm. And even things like, yeah, thinking critically about it. And also, I mean, I mean, the whole narrative of the people that create this online erotic imagery, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like, I know people really love to just think that we're all being used and abused. Um, mm-hmm. And consensually, perhaps if it's some sort of fetish video. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in ge- it's an enormous, enormous industry with millions of people not only watching, but creating the adult content that you see on your little screens. Mm-hmm. This is your PhD, porn so, literacy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you know, figuring out what I want to do for my my dissertation because you know porn is such a uh, touchy subject. And uh, that was a fail. I'm so sorry. And um, <laughs> I just, I, I want to, I want to kind of take a. A business approach to this where I can get my foot in the door with conversations and then bust it open and talk about porn so like if mm-hmm. I talk about um, like sex for survivors and then wean porn conversations in there I, I don't know I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm doing the really bad thing I'm not quite having a, a solid dissertation angle yet but apparently I know a lot of stuff about porn and trafficking and and sex for survivors so we're doing it all yeah, so why not bring your two worlds together, like your job and your and your research, kind of try to, that makes perfect, lovely sense. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure once you do figure out exactly how you want to write your dissertation, it'll be fucking fantastic. But I know, oh my, uh, the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> Where do you like to start a conversation as far as porn literacy goes? I know you've done a lot of talks, a lot of talks all mm-hmm. around the world about porn literacy. Where do you usually start these this conversation? Yeah, I always like to start off with a pop quiz. Um, are, do you consent to being to being quizzed right now? I most certainly do. <laughs> I, I always love pop quizzes. It, it wakes people up. It makes people go, holy crap, I didn't know I had to work in a, in a conversation about porn. <laughs> 
I didn't know I didn't participate. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I think the big uh, conversation that comes up when we talk about porn is the violence against women that's happening in it and that it is horrific and absolutely terrible. And it's in like every single video. So I've pulled up quite a bit of research and I want you to tell me how much porn depicts violence against women. And I'm going to give you four percentages and you're going to tell me the percentage that is backed up by science and research. Okay. Great. All right. So 2%, 14 percent, 36% or 88%. How much porn depicts violence against women? See, that's so interesting. It's an interesting question. It's very a broad question. Like what is sexual violence against women? You know what I mean? I think mm-hmm. that definition there needs to happen. Like I could throw out, you know, a, I'll say, I'll say B, you know, but for me, that's like a super vague question that needs a lot more defining specific definitions surrounding. And you're correct. Oh, hey. But uh, technically, they're actually all correct. So, you know, you're... Yeah, we, right, 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 right. Gets a, everyone gets a participatory uh, uh, winning gold star. Uh, ribbon right now. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Well, you get two, two gold stars, one for each nipple. And so... <laughs> <laughs> We're almost pasties. Love it. And, uh, yeah, so so each of those stats, 2, 14, 36, and 88, are, are all backed up by scientific research now. And, you know, you're so smart. You hit the nail right on the head. How do we actually define violence against women? Yeah. And so um, within the 88% study, the, uh, violence against women was defined including acts like threesomes, the <laughs> orgasm, oh, I'm, I'm not even there yet, the orgasm O-face <laughs> by women. Oh, Any sort of... God spanking, slapping, any sort of kink, fetish, really anything outside yeah. of the, the vanilla world, um, anything uh, regarding, um, yeah, any sort of contact, any sort of uh, spanking, any sort of anal as well, all defined as violence against women. And so when we see the headlines, 88% of porn depicts violence against women, it makes us go, oh my goodness, like, yes, yeah, something needs to be done about this. Right. But my angle is that we, you know, abolishing it is not going to make things better. It's not going to make things safer for the performers and the people involved in this industry, the staff, the producers, et cetera, et cetera. Because when we push things into darker spaces, it makes it a lot easier for bad things to happen and a lot more difficult for good things to happen. So exactly. sex workers' rights, people being able to freely leave the job, people being paid for the work that they are doing and people and being paid for the work that they've been asked to do, not the extras and so this is you know this type of um kind of discussions around pornography is is really kind of what raises the awareness around why we need to talk about it and i specifically talk about why we need to have these conversations with youth which people go i don't know yeah right (laughs) no that's lovely and and I mean, that shows you right there that you've got these four different figures from scientific studies and how people use, you know, the um, the evidence, the results from these studies to determine, you know, like legislature and mm-hmm. like it develops the social consciousness, uh, you know, uh, feelings surrounding pornography. And as you showed, it can be completely inaccurate for all these reasons. Um, like a woman, if a woman having an orgasm face when she's coming is, is violence, then, well, yeah. 
who the hell decided that was violence? Um, and, you know, I, I have a feeling it certainly wasn't the woman having the orgasm because that probably felt pretty fantastic. So, you know, it's like who is defining these words and like, you know, anything with sex workers, it's like we are the last ones to actually be asked uh, what's going on, you know, in our industry and what should be done and what we need and what would make it safer and all of these mm -hmm. things. We're the last people to be asked. So people are just watching porn kind of, um, you know, boiling down their own opinions on it based on absolutely nothing, based on their own personal upbringing and, mm -hmm. you know, maybe their history with with abuse or, um, you know, anything, relationships, dating, sex, like it has so much of these personal opinions that they're putting into this quote unquote scientific research. It's like, mm -hmm. I love that you're just tearing all this apart and being like, no. <laughs> no, we won't. Exactly. I will not. Yeah. We have a tough time with women experiencing pleasure and thinking that they can have agency over that. Mm -hmm. We see that just smothered throughout our, our entire culture, right? We have abortion rights being taken away. We have people debating over whether or not conversion therapy should, should be a thing. And we have people thinking that it should be. And people thinking that... Yeah. Um, Non-queer like, people deciding that and, you know, cis men deciding abortion stuff. It's like, dear God, like, how, I don't understand at this point in 2021 mm -hmm. how we have not come to a point to let trans people represent you know about trans rights to let women you know yes. decide abortion rights to to let you know what i mean and, and men with uteruses you know what i mean like yeah. why are we not at that point where it's like just old old whites straight men are just deciding all of this shit for all of these marginalized identities like sex workers like people on the mm -hmm. spectrum trans folks disabled like on and on and on yeah and i think it's this um this kind of uh I don't have the right word in my mind right now, but we see them as victims, right? Yes. If you're involved in sex work, like you are a victim to sex work. If you're someone with a disability, you are a victim and it's, oh, poor you. And we need to, we need to help you because you clearly don't know how to help yourself. You don't know how to make yourself better. You don't know how to get yourself out of this industry. And I need to save you. It's that savior complex. Yeah. And, you know, I think if we step back and start really listening, we're going to make a lot more progress. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from, that assumption that all sex workers are uh, victims? I think it's a big it, question, I know. Yeah, it <laughs> definitely comes from, from a lot of things. Um, you know, we can, I, I like to always think about this iceberg. And so at the very tip of the iceberg, we are, are the things that we see, right? And we th see that like, you know, women in porn and, and really anyone in, in porn are, are victims and that we need to save them. And then as you move down the iceberg, obviously it gets bigger and bigger underwater. And so we start to look at, you know, let's, let's jump all the way back to a couple of years ago a couple hundred years ago with um, the, agri <laughs> the agricultural movement, right? And, um, or the agricultural revolution, rather. And this kind of re-justified how we see families and how we view monogamy. And mm. so the focus went from communal living and, and raising uh, children like together and everyone being like together and, and thriving as a community to very individual uh, basics where, uh, basis where we um, are on farms and we need to um, marry a woman and have 
her as property repopulate and uh, have a bunch of children. And so from that point, women were seen as property and, and men were seen as, as the givers and receivers of that. And that women shouldn't have the ability to choose because they should be there to serve men. So we have kind of that agricultural movement um, where we take that uh, communal aspect and move it more into the individual aspect, into more aspects of capitalism, property ownership. And then, of course, we have to have the sprinkle of, of religious basis in there. And I'm in no way insinuating that spirituality is 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 horrible. I think spirituality is is fundamental to who we are as humans. It, it allows us to thrive. It allows us to heal. It allows us uh, to, to receive guidance and support where we need it in life. It's the organization yeah. of religion that harms people that um you know connects with uh you know various organize uh, various governments to say like look we need to we need to stop this because women should not be subjected to this and we need to save women we need to save the children instead of actually just listening to them and so it's it's a whole kind of structure and might as well throw the patriarchy in there too i guess i was kind yep. of insinuating that with uh, uh the agricultural movement in the industrial revolution as well but there's there's so many deeper layers to that we look at marriage and who takes the last name uh we look at like bank accounts we look at 1982 where um where women couldn't be raped by their husband and that men also couldn't be victims of rape. And so, you know, when conversations about the patriarchy come up and this uh, comes up in my day job, I, um, I help coordinate a men's group where, you know, men aren't even recognized as victims uh, of sexual violence up until 1982. It's not until 1982 in Canada where we started to reframe it as like anyone can be a victim. Mm -hmm. And so men are victims of the patriarchy too. They're victims of, you know, not being able to freely express themselves. And so we're all suffering when we don't actually talk about the problems and don't talk about how we can heal from it as opposed to the decisions that I'm making for you. Yes. Oh my God. I love that you had <laughs> such a, like, <laughs> such a far back reverence of, of like, when did this, you know, who got this idea in their head of like, women are victims, you know, and more specifically, sex workers are always going to be victims. Like, I love that you're like, well, agricultural revolution. <laughs> I love that. I would expect nothing <laughs> less from you, Alicia. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go to school. This is what happens to you. Oh. <laughs> uh, it's so mm -hmm. true, though. Like, it's all, you know, I I often will blame, <laughs> blame all of that, uh, just on the miasma of, you know, our culture, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and, and fear, right? Fear of the unknown, fear of harm. Nobody, nobody wants to be sexually assaulted. And so it's so much easier to say, like, oh, those victims, oh, those sex workers, as a way to disassociate ourselves from the problem, thinking as if we don't contribute to the problem. But in yeah. fact, like we all are, right? Like if you're not paying for your porn, if you're not having dis open and honest discussions with youth about what porn is, about who porn stars are, about, spoiler alert, that it's a performance mm -hmm. and that yes, there are human bodies there, but it's a performance that people are filming like for you, um, it, you know, we, we need more for entertainment purposes, yeah, not educational right? purposes, you know. And, you know, the average age in Canada that people are first accessing porn is around 12 years of age. Um, and people that checks think, out for me right? personally. Yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> oh, I, I asked the question at the beginning of every single one of my presentations, how were you introduced to porn? Mm -hmm. And it's all within that age range. I would say five years. Um, there, there are people a little bit later in life that come across it. And 
are, are just like mortified of like, what the heck even is this? Mm-hmm. So um, people I think like to think with technology that people are accessing porn at earlier and earlier uh, years, but we have information dating back to the 70s. Now I will say a lot of this information about who the children accessing porn, believe it or not, actually comes from a lot of a re- religious based affiliations. So I don't know how, uh, scientifically sound yeah, uh, this again, research is. Again, skewed research, yeah. Yeah, but this this age range has remained within a one to two year age, age difference. So um, there was some information that came out of the UK that found at least 56% of boys and, 40, and 40% of girls have been exposed to online pornography before the age of 16. And boys are more likely to seek it out than girls and boys are more likely to have positive experiences about it. Hmm. <sighs> That's kind of interesting, that gendered, you know, the gender differences there, specifically about the last thing you said, like having positive versus Mm -hmm. negative experiences. And, you know, when people like to like to say, oh, we shouldn't be talking about the the sex with with children because they don't know what it is. Well, this research alone shows that they are understanding what it is and they're already uh, soaking in the shame and stigma surrounding it and that it is impacting a certain gender identity more than another. Yeah. And that they're wanting to, like, it shows a willingness and interest, you know, um, to know about it. So Mm -hmm. it's like, well, why wouldn't we be just having age appropriate conversations, you know, at this age, at this age, at this age, rather than just not saying anything and have the kid being on porn hub, you know, watching their free porn up until their adulthood, (laughs) up until, you know, our shitty sex ed that we get in Catholic schools (laughs) are like, you know, or our petrified parents who have like one very short conversation and then never speak of it again. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. both things I personally experienced. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I had the, I had the public school experience where uh, it was like, you have three holes down there and uh, (laughs) and uh, you're going to put the tampon in the right one and, and don't watch porn because it's bad. That's it. Okay, thanks. The end. <laughs> and then, you know, the, the sex talk from my parents was, uh, you know, if you're going to have sex, then that means you're a woman and you're going to have to pay for everything. And that was my that was my talk. So, uh, <laughs> wow. You're paying. <laughs> you're going to have to start paying rent. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's an, a unique take on the sex talk. Um. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that was uh, that was it. Let's talk, let's talk about capitalism and impacting our sex lives, shall we? <laughs> oh my goodness, totally. But yeah, you're so can you tell me a little bit more about this like gendered impact that we're having, the negative versus positive? And, you know, as you were just kind of starting to say, the shame, you know, is already being established really early mm-hmm. in an er- early age, you know, when you're when you're watching porn and not having the literacy, you know, mm. not not able to process it and understand and um, have a critical look at it or an objective look at it, not having those tools. Yeah, there's so many so many layers to this, and um, and and where the shame uh, comes from. You know, we talk about women's bodies and hi- what they ought to be, and this goes beyond just the porn world. Um, you know, this goes into the media that we're seeing. It goes into you know who's in the beauty campaigns. What are the standards of of beauty at the time? 
and that you all should media. look yeah right all media mm-hmm. and you know what's really interesting because uh in the in the 70s which was kind of the um midway through the golden era of pornography um this is where the quote-unquote anti-pornography movement started um which was a, a feminist critique to violence against women in all imagery it just so happens that um the voices of the porn industry and that violence against women in porn obviously was taken hold of by the government and the church and other organizations like that. And that's where that uh, movement grew from. Um, but anyway, that was just an aside. So <laughs> the, 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 I, um, I did a presentation to grade seven boys and we were talking about someone that we look up to and characteristics surrounding that. And a grade seven boy, I kid you not, said to me, Riley Reed Whoa. is someone I look up to. Right. Porn star. Yeah. Yeah. One of the top porn stars uh, yeah. in the last couple of years. Yeah. And and Riley Reed looks very, very young. This is nothing against her, but she looks very young. So that's why I think that she's kind of relatable to younger audiences. And and she has pubic hair too, which is, you know, really fascinating um, mm-hmm. to kind of see that pushback in, in um, I guess, like, yeah, in porn. Like, <laughs> um, but, uh, and, and he was proud about it. And they were, and, you know, there was like that small group of boys that kind of like chuckled and uh, hit each other's shoulder. And my male presenter didn't actually know who Riley Weed was mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, started asking questions about who he was because he's <laughs> supposed to be the strongest man. And it was just so interesting that the youth mentioned a, a porn star. A female porn star. <laughs> yeah. A female porn star. Yeah, not yeah. even a male star. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of my issues with, uh, with this is not is not that teen is not that youth and, and teens and children are consuming pornography, but it's how they perceive it to be real. Yes. And so from that study, it was fifty three percent of boys found uh, thought that porn was real, and that thirty nine percent of girls thought that porn was real. And yeah. so that to me is is what is is the real concern, and it's something that we can shift. And the responses to porn um, were curious, shocked and confused and they did a a bit of a longitudinal study and looked at kind of the responses to porn a little bit later curiosity remained relatively the same but the shocked and confused decreased by 20 percent each so what i'm saying is that if we teach about media literacy as well as porn literacy this is actually going to create a safer space that is more informed, that is um, informed by choices to consume this uh, material, knowing what it is, what it entails, and ultimately that it's not real. And people mm-hmm. go, Alicia, like, do we think that teaching youth about porn is is actually beneficial? And the issue is that you know, uh, ethics standards, we can't show porn to uh, to youth. Right. Um, that's, that's not okay, especially in in research. Um, but not so much in 1996. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they had a, a group of, um, of, of, of teenagers. They were like, um, uh, like 15 to 18 year old youth. And um, there was one group that just watched the se- sexually explicit material and talked about it afterwards. And there was another group that had pre-briefings and debriefings. And from the group that actually had, surprise, surprise, discussions about what porn is, what it entails, or in this aspect, sexually explicit material, what it is, what it entails, that Mm -hmm. it's uh, a performance, and that there's scripts and contracts and no-go zones and stuff like that. 
and camera angles and all that kind of stuff. Angles, yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, totally different lube. experience, I imagine. I know, apparently. But from this, they found that a less perceived realism of the events for the folks that had the educations about, about, about porn. And so that they knew it wasn't real. But I think the kicker to all of this is that they also held less rape myth supported beliefs. So having discussions about what sexually explicit material is actually leads to less harmful beliefs about sexual violence. Mm-hmm. Because they're having a more nuanced understanding of what's happening in the porn that they're watching. I mm-hmm. love that. I'm going to add a nuanced take um, Ooh, yes. on this, you know, is porn real thing because I am a porn creator. And uh, what? Uh, uh, what? No. <laughs> You? I could never. (laughs) And I know a lot of adult content creators as well. And I've worked with a bunch um, as well in like, you know, that's a 101 conversation, you know, that porn is not real. It's here for entertainment purposes. It's being produced, created, curated, all of these things for you for entertainment purposes. But specifically what um, referring to whether porn is real. um, I'm like, well, yeah, it's very real. I'm a real person having real sex with another real person. You know what I mean? Believe it or not, it's real sex. Like anybody that would like ask me a question of like, oh, does, but you know, does fisting ever happen in real life? I'm like, yes. And there's a camera in the room sometimes. Like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, so Mm -hmm. to say that it's not real to me is not accurate. Um, To say that we might be cheating out to the camera, to say that we might be Mm -hmm. not completely showing, though I do like to do this as much as possible in my porn, we might not be showing like the negotiation, the aftercare, um, the consent conversations, the ongoing consent conversations, you know what I mean? The setup, Mm -hmm. the teardown, all of the kind of behind the scenes stuff, like the camera switching an angle, lube, like you mentioned, barriers, condoms. The eating beforehand. Yes, yeah, what us having a chat and uh, beforehand over or over lunch and discussing what we would like to do, you know, and the prep to scenes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's the prep, you know, like what goes in some scenes are more require more prep and da, da, da. Yeah. like I do like to show as much of that in my porn as mm-hmm. possible, and I also like to represent as many diverse bodies and have as many quote unquote like real pleasure happening or real pain or you know um, real orgasms. Um, bodies that represent, you know, all of us rather than just um, that classic 90s porn star look that you're describing at the very beginning with the huge breasts and the bl- big blonde hair and yeah. tiny little waist and all of that. So no pubic hair, stuff like that. Mm. So, you know, I do kind of ha- feel like I want to push against porn is not real. Because to me, mm-hmm. as a person that creates porn, it's very real. It was my yesterday afternoon, you know, so yes. it was for sure real. It happened. <laughs> yeah, It was sex that happened. Um, but the only difference was, you know, there was a camera in the room. So we did some things to make it look better on camera. Mm-hmm. And that was it. But that's part of this porn literacy that you are talking about. Exactly. Is giving people an understanding of like, okay, these two people are having sex in front of a camera for you, the watcher. <laughs> and mm-hmm. here's a better understanding of like what that actually looks like 
behind the scenes versus what it looks like on your phone or laptop. <laughs> yeah, it yeah. De- definitely. There, there needs to be like more conversations about like the the realisticness of, of porn and that, you know, it's not exactly how sex is going to happen each and every time, right? Mm-hmm, we need mm-hmm. to set more realistic standards of what intimate connections entail and that it doesn't always have to come down to penetrative intercourse. Let's take a moment to talk about our lovely sponsors, shall we? First of all, Oasis Aqua Lounge is a water-themed sex club located right here in Toronto at 231 Mutual Street. Oasis is inclusive of all genders and orientations and is shame-free when it comes to pleasure and play. Check them out at their website, oasisaqualounge.com. Unicorn Collaborators is the local leather business of two queer unicorns. They specialize in luxurious and colorful harnesses for all body types, and even craft non-conventional ones for your thigh, fist, or foot. Check them out at their Etsy shop under Unicorn Collaborators. Lovecrafters Toys is a non-gendered fantasy sex toy line that makes weird and wonderful dildos in the shape of tentacles, unicorn horns, mermaid tails, and more. Their high-quality silicone is hand-poured right here in Toronto. Check out their Etsy shop at Lovecrafters Toys. ComeAsYouAre.com is a trans-owned, trans-operated sex shop that also happens to be feminist and anti-capitalist. They carry only the best sex toys and want to give you the best price possible. Next time, use the coupon code BEDPOST, that's B-E-D-P-O-S-T, when checking out at ComeAsYouAre.com. And you mentioned a really great point about like diversity. So um, part of my research was looking at the categorical representation and the videos representing those categories on Pornhub. And outside of celebrity, which is always going to be represented by Kim Kardashian, orgy, (laughs) (laughs) interracial, big dick, certain gender categories and ethnic and race categories, outside of those categories, they're all represented by white presenting, able-bodied, skinny slash kind of muscular heterosexual fit cisgender bodies yes so what is that then saying about who can experience pleasure and what that's pleasure supposed to be like right yeah unless it's a fetish it's being fetishized then it can exist here but otherwise it's for Mm -hmm. white fit able-bodied cis straight people young young yeah another one if you're like a queer person of color who has a disability like you're digging into the depths of really creepy fetishized crap uh, in order to to find stuff and and I'm more so specifically speaking to to Pornhub and the lack of diversity on there there certainly is incredible websites that you can find more representation but you know Pornhub is the one that has millions and um, I think it was like 120 million was was what the last daily count was of daily access count yeah those handful of of enormous porn websites you know uh, that's what you're getting you're getting this Mm -hmm. type of body here and these types of bodies in these fetish categories here exactly yeah and what do you think that does to what does that do to young people then people who are not literate surrounding what they're watching if they're seeing the category those are the categories yeah I think it it you know it sets these unrealistic expectations for you know it's a, I say sex but really this this moves into even how we have relationships yeah and how body connect- image by yourself just you yourself and your yeah. own body yeah, yeah yeah I was just going to that right and how we yeah. connect with ourselves and what our even personal pleasure should should look and feel like and 
there was even research that came out that showed that roughly um, a quarter of, of women, and yes, a lot of scientific research is unfortunately very binary in terms of gender, it's men and women, and oh, we have other, but we don't have enough other people, so we're just going to ignore it, which is unfortunately what happens um, way too much in research. And um, But uh, anyway, so going, I, I get, my mind gets like, okay, well, what about this? Um, <laughs> sidebar, sidebar, like, sidebar. Uh, yeah, how um, women in particular are, are reaching orgasm. It's like less than a quarter that are actually reaching orgasm from predatory intercourse, but yet what do we see in porn? And yet who do we see reaching orgasm? And the yeah. last research that we had was in the top 50 videos on Pornhub. It showed men reaching orgasm 78% of the time and, only, and women reaching orgasm only 18.2% of the time. And so then who, what does that say about um, who sex is for? And yes, I use sex within that very like narrow scope. Who is it for and yeah. how is it supposed to finish? Yeah. And this is an interesting conversation too, um, kind of tagged on to the real quote unquote real is porn real or not. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the, the popular videos, what is going to be showed more often is stuff that is kind of unique sexual experiences. Um, And I know everyone can squirt, but just as an example, um, a lot of people don't know how to squirt. And squirting porn is like a super, super, super duper um, popular category, right? So it's kind of like, well, it's real that they're squirting. Yes, if we're talking about is porn real, but we're talking about... um, it's being misrepresented that that is everybody should be perhaps quote unquote, again, uh, everyone's mm-hmm. experience, but you know why it's popular on a porn website is because not everyone can do it. So it's kind of cool to see it and jerk off to it, but and every it's theatrical. Yeah, it and... is. It's a big visual. Yes. Feast, right? Huzzah. Yes. It's, you know, when the smoke goes up, when a magician does <laughs> exactly. their thing, yes. who doesn't want to see that? Yeah. So it's entertaining. So it has entertainment yeah. value, right? So that's why we see a lot of that tied to female orgasm, for instance, you know, in porn is because it has all those entertainment qualities to it. So yeah, it's real. That porn is real. But the representation of that experience in sex is not real, perhaps, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. We we have this limited scope of, of of what sex ought to be, and so I I like to think back to the baseball analogy back you know like about five years ago when we were youth, um, and how the big the big thing was to hit the home run mm-hmm. right to to get the home run that's what you have to do, and so the first bag being like holding hands, second being kissing, third being oral, and then the home run being penetrative intercourse. And what I feel like is happening in our culture is that we're just running the pitcher's mound and heading straight to the home base. Like we're not taking time. (laughs) We're just (laughs) running on the spot, really. Yeah, yeah. We're just like running around. We're not even going around the bases. Yeah, you're just in spot. (laughs) Yeah, you get the bat and then you like put it on your head and you lean over and you do the spinning. That's what we're just doing, right? (laughs) Except with a bat, it's a, a clitoris or a dick, you know. Yeah. Swing it around, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so we're we're failing to really take time to explore our bodies in a deep, compassionate level, and we're we're jumping to okay, I gotta I gotta stick something in there, or I gotta mm-hmm. I gotta jerk off. And you know what I see in a lot of my my male clients in particular is this unpacking of shame, this unpacking of guilt, of homophobia, of wanting to explore pleasure. But as a, as a straight man, it's disgusting if they, if they are 
um, excited by butt stuff. It's disgusting right. if they have another dude suck them off um, and that they hate themselves afterwards. And so a lot of work with <laughs> that I do with men is exploring that shame and guilt and like unpacking that and allow them to explore that themselves that, you know, our identities is, is, has nothing to do with like our pleasure. We can explore pleasure without the labels. And I think we live in a, in a culture and society that's just like, we have to label everything and then we have to attach an emotion to it. And, yeah. and I think that really narrows our, our ability to explore pleasure in a really open and honest way. And I'm sure you experience that too and how liberating it can be. I was going to oh, say, oh, oh. like, that is essentially what I do in my job. Like, yeah, I have, I have clients of all genders, but mostly they're males um, who, it's the same thing of like, it has to be in this fetish court, uh, category, right? For them to be able to get permission from themselves to explore it, right? So that's why they see me, who's a kink facilitator, rather than just having sex the way they want to have sex with their partners and in their relationships and on hookups and in their personal lives. It's like reserved in this kink category that's really taboo, you know? And it's like, man, you know, getting pegged is not really a kink. Like, I can make it, you can make it kinky by adding all these kind of subversive layers. And the reason, you know, it's in the kink category is because it's so, um, you know, again, with the patriarchy and how it affects all genders, you know, Mm -hmm. men specifically in this, what I'm talking about right now, you know what I mean? Like they aren't free to express, for instance, submissive desires to um, other people because they fear rejection, right? Because they're ashamed of it because it's generally considered taboo. So it's just kind of funny that it's like, I see so many people that really aren't kinky. You know, you're not really, we're not really dealing with kinks. We're dealing with things that men don't feel, you know, that feel, that they feel shame around. And I, I mean, this is a portion of my clientele. Other people are super kinky and other people, um, <laughs> you know, are just kind of not have, have kind of gone through the this door, <laughs> as far as like, experiencing their own pleasure for themselves, and also other people that see sex workers for lots of other reasons, like mm-hmm. they just don't have access to sex in their life. And they so they hire a professional, because um, yeah. that's all they have the time and energy for. Um, mm-hmm. But it's very interesting how you're how you're saying about when and where specifically men in this conversation can access pleasure Mm -hmm. yeah i think we need to add permission providers to our bios now (gasps) yes because that's what we do we hold the space right i provide a safe space that's that is a great i love that Mm-hmm. I'll I love take the that royalties. title. Yes, I'll, I'll tag you every time I use that. I'll be like, term um, birthed by Alicia Fisher. But it's so true. Like, people come to me just to have somebody to ex- accept them as mm-hmm. they want to experience pleasure. I feel like all of us, um, no matter where we're at in our pleasure journey and exploration, involves some level of unpacking the stig- the invisible stigma backpack that we yeah. that we carry with us and, and learn about. Whether that's through our education, whether that's through our family, our friends, through our educators, teachers, through the medical industry, we all have to unpack that somewhere in our in our lives. And for some people that that shame backpack, that stigma backpack is is jam packed. And for others, it's just, you know, annoying burrs that keep getting stuck to it that you have to sit there and and pluck out each little each little one. Uh, Yeah, 
I don't want to go too much further before uh, kind of seg- segueing this conversation into uh, we wanted to talk about sex, sexual assault survivors and the work that you do in your day job. Yeah. So how does this conversation kind of segue into into a sex- the work you do at your sexual assault center? Yeah, and I, because as as intimate human beings, we need to step out and take a look at a trauma-informed approach to our relationships, to our sex lives. And unfortunately, the numbers that we have in Canada right now are that one in three women, one in eight men, and one in two trans and non-binary individuals will experience sexual violence at some point in their lifetime. One in and two. Yeah, one in two. And that's what we have from Rainbow Health Ontario. We don't have that number from uh, <clears throat> the government. Because, <laughs> yes, I wonder why we haven't put money into wanna... funding surrounding those studies. Yeah. Put a little caveat out there that I'm currently not representing them uh, at this moment while I'm here. Right now, I'm relationship right, right. coach me. But yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it all informs e- each other, right? And it's, yes, there are individuals that... Um, uh, are not sexual and experience sexual assault and, and don't want to explore sexuality ever again. And that's totally valid. But for the majority, you you want to have sex again. You want to explore pleasure again, but you're navigating these disassociations and triggers. And I did this conversation with uh, Pineapple Support down in the States. They are uh, a mental health and and even beyond uh, free resource center for people involved in the adult industry. And uh, and I talked about sex work for survivors and navigating those disassociations and triggers. And so, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I talked about, you know, what the difference is between a trigger and a disassociation and you know, long story short, triggers kind of that that flashback, that memory that like throws us back there. Um, and that can be um, usually accessed through our senses. So sight and sound are the two, top two. So a certain thing that you're seeing or a certain thing that you hear and you go and you get kind of get that flashback. Um, you have a strong emotional response to it. Exactly. Yeah. And it kind of just throws that, throws us to, to that time um, and brings us right back into that emotional space. And then the disassociation part. And I talk about these two because of the two most common things that are brought up. And the disassociation, there's kind of two types. There's the depersonalization where we feel disconnected from our body and the derealization where we feel as if we're in a very strange place and we don't know where we are in the environment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, these happen because unfortunately our, our brains are assholes and <laughs> our brains want to keep us alive. And so what they'll do, what our brain does is that when we experience harm in some capacity, and and I even use harm even loosely too, we can talk about a car accident, we can talk about um um, childhood sexual abuse, we can talk about sexual assault. There's a lot of different um, kind of things that can, Im- a lot of different harms in our lives that that, Im- that imprint on our mind. And our mind goes, okay, that was a dangerous situation. Got that in my mind, locked it away. And so when we experience something similar to that, our brain goes, ding, ding, ding. Our amygdala goes, oh, hey, I recognize this. And we flip into survivor mode, yes. which is that freeze, flight, fight, and fawn. Fawn is new to some folks. Fawn is where you love the person that's harming you in order to lessen or or reduce that harm. 
So we jump into this and I always like to just validate folks that this jumping that our minds and our body does is a very normal response to a very abnormal event. And so it doesn't look the same for everyone. There are people who experience sexual violence in their life and they're able to just bounce back, you know, resiliency and just be like, hey, yep, went I went through, dealt, did it, dealt with it, and I'm moving on and I'm already jumping into the healing. And then there are people that experience it and it's completely debil- debilitating. Yeah. I unpack a lot of myths as well and that whole stranger danger. But what we actually see in Ontario is that anywhere between 80 to 96%, and 96% is actually what's happening in Peterborough, Ontario right now, um, of sexually violent acts are perpetrated by someone known to the victim. Yeah, so stranger which is danger. The opposite what we were told with stranger danger when we were kids. Don't take candy from strangers. Don't talk to strangers. Never get in a stranger's car, etc. Exactly. Complete yeah. opposite. Yeah. And that most of the sexual viol- sexually violent acts happen in a place of residence. And so jumping into COVID, well, we've been locked down with with someone, mm. not, not everyone, but yeah. we've been locked down with our whoever we're living with in a place of residence. But yet we hear the message stay at home, stay safe, or stay home, stay safe. Right. And it's, so that's why we've seen huge increases in calls to our crisis line. We saw um, a 400% increase from the 2019 holiday season to the 2020 holiday season. So that's something that I don't think I really have considered that, that, that over the pandemic time, um, that people mm-hmm. would be stuck with abusive partners, roommates, parents, relatives, whatever, mm-hmm. friends, you know, in a place of residence and not um, not be able to, you know, ha- have be struggling with um, that more so than they would be previously pre-pandemic mm-hmm. times. And what do you do when you need help? <laughs> the, yeah. Everything's closed. Exactly. And so Where do you go? Where do you what are you go? supposed to do? Have a virtual talk while yeah. the perpetrator's sitting right next to you with a with your counselor? Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. So um, it's a really it's a really difficult time, and and I have a lot of uh, couples that that come up to me, and I say couples because that's the majority of folks that that access my service that has a partner that has experienced some form of trauma in their life, or even just a bad relationship prior to, and then that has then been brought to the current relationship yes and so now instead of just a solo healing it's now communal healing it's always a communal hearing healing but uh in this particular case it's uh now been brought in and so i talk about exactly and so i talk about um in particular three um ways to kind of like work through those disassociations and triggers so I talk about reorienting the senses and getting connected with the sights and sounds that can bring us some sort of calmness. I talk about practical breathing. Um, you know, we always hear about you breathe out and, and, and or, you know, take a deep breath in and then do a big breath out. But the thing is, I always hated that. And I went, what the, like, this is getting worse for me now. I'm freaking out more because I'm not breathing properly. Oh, my God. Yeah. But what happened to me when when I experienced sexual violence or when I even experienced any form of trauma in my life, I went, Hmm. I breathed in. And so my body, when I'm doing those big, deep inhales, my body went, what are you breathing in for? What are you preparing for? What's going on? And then my brain started to go. 
Mm-hmm. So I talk mm-hmm. about practical breathing and different breathing strategies and then personal holds as a somatic base. So how we're connecting with our body. So anyway, those like super briefly, but sexual yeah. violence is, is connected to this. And the thing, and when we take survivor centered and trauma informed practices into our relationship, it's going to help people who've experienced trauma, but it's also just going to make the relationship safer for everyone. Yeah. Harm reduction. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you explain like the benefits, those, those other kind of benefits of having like a harm reduction approach to like your relationships? You kind of mentioned that there are other ways, other ways this can impact your relationship in a really positive way, trauma aside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the trauma informed and, and survivor centered frameworks are really about understanding that uh, more than likely, there's people out there and, and someone who you may be in a relationship with who has experienced this type of harm or, or violence in their life. And so what this does, essentially, it makes it uh, a more thrivable space or more survivable space for, for everyone. So that includes when before you touch someone, you ask them if you can touch them. Before you do anything with this individual, you're asking first. So like consent. Yeah. as a basic kind of framework for a lot of this. Yeah, not just not... in the bedroom, but in the it... whole uh, rest of the relationship. Exactly. And it goes beyond just like a, you know, consent goes so far beyond sex. It, it's, you know, asking to make breakfast in the morning, asking what they want. And we always talk about communication as a foundation of relationships, but it's also the listening and it's listening with your ears and your eyes because we learn so much about people through their body movements and through their facial expressions. Yeah, nonverbal cues, mm-hmm. especially with where consent is involved. Exactly. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah. Yeah, go, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, because um, you can communicate, you know, either consenting or not consenting to something, you know, perhaps you have conflicting um, nonverbal cues and you know, what you're actually saying. So it's that nuanced understanding surrounding consent to be able to um, dissect those and pick up on those and intuit those and communicate about those yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Canada kind of made a mess of consent because uh, the big campaign that so much of us know is yes means yes and no means no. Exactly, yeah. But yeah, way to go, Canada. What the heck? <laughs> <laughs> um, but consent is so much more than the yes. Sometimes a consent is sure, but how do we know that sure is a yes sure versus that sure being a maybe sure? Yeah. How do we know that that silence is a yes silence versus a no silence and that we have to be paying attention to a lot more than just what's being verbally spoken about but how it's being uh shown you know like you can arch your back in a way that depicts that you're very uh pleasured right now but then you can have those back arches where it's painful and i'm Mm -hmm. sure like you have plenty of experiences with back arches and pain versus pleasure yeah yeah exactly yeah how something can look like essentially look like something on the surface but the intention behind the thing is what you need to be Uh, understanding and concerned about and ask about and communicate Mm -hmm. if you're the one doing it yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. trauma-informed also comes down to how we're setting up a space right is it a space free of distractions and so we're hearing a lot about techno interference in in the bedroom and uh, how technology can actually be a hindrance in in relationships and how it can be 
not only like visually distraction, but distracting, but also emotionally distracting as well. So how are you, how are you using technology in a trauma informed way? How are we listening to our partners when they're talking about technology use and how that is really impacting people um, on deeper levels rather than like, don't like this photo and don't talk to this person. And mm. anyway, that's, that's a whole other conversation, but technology can also be part of a, a trauma informed approach. That's so interesting. Can you talk just like a couple minutes more about that? I think that's so interesting. And I don't know if I've ever had a guest talk about this on the pod before. How can you you can use technology in a trauma informed approach? Definitely. So um, a lot of these conversations about technology, um, we really create these ideas about um, possessiveness in relationships mm. and uh, about like, you know, this person is your is your uh, your other half and that they complete you and that, you know, you need to monitor them 24 um, seven. But and, and this even goes beyond just like social media use, but even with work. Right. And that we bring our work home with us and into the bedroom. And I, and I, you know, I mean, beyond the camming, I mean, like when we're, uh, you know, <laughs> well, like especially answering... during the pandemic, it's like a lot of us are working from home now. So exactly. Yeah. And so how do we create that separation of workspace versus home space versus sexual space versus technology space? And, you know, there can be times that technology can be um, really sexy. Um, and there can be times that te- technology can be really triggering. So, you know, your partner watching porn, I get this so much that people mm. um, get this idea that, well, my partner watches blondes and I'm a brunette, therefore my partner uh, doesn't value me. And so how are you having those conversations about porn use um, in your relationship? You know, what are we talking, when when are we having these conversations about who we're watching, what we enjoy, why we enjoy it, um, and unpacking maybe our own internal uh, judgments about this, right? I hear just from so many people that go, well, my partner watches porn and they enjoy watching that more than more than me and it's like well why do you why do you think that way why what has led you to this conclusion um yeah it's just like some point <laughs> yeah no that's fantastic thank you for that <laughs> thank you for indulging me in just a couple minutes of that um but we should be ending semi soon in a couple minutes should be should I, we be. should be being the key uh word <laughs> um but is there anything that we Anything we should end on here, uh, anything that we talked about that was a little open-ended that we wanted to wrap up, put a button on surrounding your work? You can think about it. Don't. I, it, a lot of people don't have an answer right away for that, but I'm just like, any last words? Yeah, definitely. I think that, um, that porn actually can be a beneficial uh, aspect of your relationship. Porn um, scientifically speaking, there's also been uh, research that has shown that the most common effect that porn has on relationships is is no effect. Um, And there's people who actually experience higher rates of um, openness about sexual communication um, and greater closeness in relationships when you actually have conversations about porn. And so one of my key strategies, and some people really don't like this, but I think it's great, is (laughs) is to blame other people. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that, you know, you come into a conversation with, hey, um, neighbor Tim was talking about uh, 
threesomes. Right, right. And yeah. maybe you're interested in threesomes. Yeah. What do you think about that as a way to open up I saw up this a video the other day. Yeah. Yeah. What are your yeah, thoughts? I was, listening, on... I was listening to this bed, po- bed post but podcast. Yeah, exactly. And, uh... Yeah, yeah. Use it. Use, blame me. Yes. By I... all means, blame me for to have that introductory conversation with the partner. <laughs> I always, I always love when people blame me for our conversations. I was totally. speaking at a at a uh, conference in in New York, and there was a, a woman there. Um, sorry, I spoke about porn literacy, and there was a woman there. I spoke day one. Sorry, <laughs> I keep going back and forth. Day one, I spoke about porn literacy, and a woman came up to me, and and she was like, you know, like this is such a weird conversation, but I know that my son is watching this, and yeah. you know, I'm I'm gonna go home and I'm gonna talk about what I saw, and I'm like, perfect, blame me. And she comes to me the next day, and she went, Alicia, I hate you. <laughs> my, oh my son God. and I, my son and I had a three-hour conversation last night. Jesus. And I have never felt more connected to my son in this as a parent ever in my life before. And my oh. son opened up to me about so much crap that he was experiencing that I had no idea if I did not have that conversation. And so even though these conversations may be really tough, they are important to have. And blaming other people, I think, is a, is a, is a good strategy <laughs> to, just, to just test the water. I, I have a yeah. lot of men that are interested in uh, more submissive forms, maybe yeah, being a yeah. sissy, taking on more uh, feminine approaches to sexuality. And I use that like so ickly but but this is this is how my clients speak and i don't want to delegitimize them and they bring up just just little things um and i've had uh clients that you know fully opened up to their partner about this and they were shut down and their partner was female and our work went from exploration and and trying new things to all of a sudden trauma and dealing with like projection surrounding it yes yeah yeah. And so, you know, thinking about like, even prior to this conversation, think about if, if porn is something you want to talk about in your relationship, think about it for yourself first. What are your assumptions about porn? How, what have you learned about porn? What do you watch? Um, and think about like, where does this, where does this come from? And how does porn interact with real life? You know, do I talk about consent with my partner? What, what goes on behind the scenes? I, I'm going to say this here, and I honestly, I want to trademark it because it's so good, and you're going to steal it, and that's okay. <laughs> I might. <laughs> you, have, you have the business framework, unlike me. It's, you need to debrief when you debrief. <laughs> it is good. It is good. I like it. Isn't that funny? I'm tweeting it out right now. Yep. <laughs> Take it. <laughs> so think about yourself. Blame yeah. other people and, and have these conversations. <laughs> Blame other people is amazing. That's so funny. I love that. Oh, Leisha, you're so fantastic. What a fountain of knowledge you always are. Oh, Where man. Can it just, we... It's just squirting everywhere. Oh, it's just, I've been, I'm wet. I'm just, I'm soaked. I'm covered in it. We have our face shields now. We came prepared. Yes, it's a good thing. It's a good thing we're virtual because yeah. otherwise... <laughs> Can you tell us where we can find and follow you on social media if there's anything else you want to plug surrounding your work? Certainly. Yeah, you can head on over to my website, inspireintimacy.com. There you can get connected with my services. 
supports as well as my social media accounts. And uh, I'm now considered a, a relationship coach. Uh, my Back in the good old days, I, I considered myself an intimacy coach, but Facebook didn't like that. So uh, <laughs> Instagram is where I'm currently okay. It's uh, alicia.jj.fisher, which is A-L-I-S-H-A dot J-J dot F-I-S-H-E-R. And so just go onto my website, inspireintimacy.com. Services, social medias, all the good things are, are uh, on there for your viewing pleasure. And I'm uh, taking clients right now for my coaching as well. I work with individuals as well as people in relationships to help enhance their intimate connections to themselves as well as other people. And I speak at uh, conferences and host workshops and uh, dirty bingos. Those are always Always fun. So if you're looking for an event host, I'm here and uh, I will provide splash cards free of charge. <laughs> Amazing. And for me, everyone, you know where to find me by now. I'm at the Lady Pim one on Twitter, at the Lady Pim or at the Bedpost podcast on Instagram. We have a Patreon. It's the Bedpost show. We have a YouTube. It's the Bedpost sex show. And we have emails. It's the Bedpost sex show at gmail.com and the lady pim at protonmail.com i always like to thank the lady that does all the original music for my pod that's stephanie copeland she's at stephcopelandmusic.com and one last enormous thank you to my lovely guest alicia fisher thank you so much this has been so lovely to speak with you again it's been my pleasure and thank you everyone who's been listening and watching we'll see you next week with another fun and sexy guest here on the bedpost podcast talking about sex and sexuality get fucked everybody goodbye this podcast has been brought to you by the sonar network